Welcome, welcome, welcome back to The Bookcase. We hope you're joining us again and are joining us regularly. I'm Charlie Gibson. And I'm Kate Gibson, two hosts who seem oddly addicted to saying welcome, 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 welcome more than once. We obsessively welcome you to The Bookcase. Well, we want to make sure, absolutely sure, that the point gets across. (laughs) We, We are featuring today a book by Azar Nafisi, A-Z-A-R-N-A-F-I-S-I. She is an Iranian writer, and she caused something of a sensation a number of years ago when she wrote a book called Reading Lolita in Tehran, which was about her and and about a, a group of women that she had reading Lolita, which was a subversive act to do in Iran, given the clerical takeover there. Now she's written a book, Kate, that I think is different than anything we've talked about. This book is called Read Dangerously. She talks in this book, I think, you know, writing, the pen is mightier than the sword. We've always assumed that writing could be a subversive act. This book makes the point very eloquently that reading can also be a subversive act. She quotes Nabokov as saying, curiosity is insubordination in its purest form. And I love this book because I think right now it's something our country could use more of. And I'm going to tell you why. We are such a divided country that has so much difficulty seeing somebody else's point of view. Um, We seem to have lost that ability to humanize the other point of view. And I think that's a big part of what books are about. It is hard for hate and empathy to coexist. So reading books that are outside of your comfort zone and in a sense challenging your perspective with reading is really important to forward progress. And I think she makes that point very articulately in this book. It is something of an offbeat book, but we wanted to do this because she makes such an important point. As Kate says, she wants people to read outside their comfort zone. And what's very interesting to me about her argument is that she makes the argument you can do that better as a writer through fiction as opposed to nonfiction, that there is a a rich history in literature where the writer, the poet, challenges the establishment. That is the way best that you can expand the reader's mind, she feels, in doing it in fiction. And she goes back all the way to Plato's Republic as really one of the first examples where a writer challenged the state. And then she brings that right up to the present and how she feels that's necessary. And she talks about reading fiction being a liberating force. And she points out that in Iran, people let it happen, that the, that the populace wasn't poised enough to object to the clerical takeover. And she's worried about it happening in the United States. I worry about how we seem to be taking our freedoms away one by one. And that freedom of the press, which is a huge given in this country, has come under fire again in the last few years. And I think that may come from the fact that we are not reading dangerously as a country. We are not actively seeking out the alternative perspective anymore. She she worries about what's happening in the United States, as you'll hear As we talk to her, also, as we've mentioned a number of times, we are pairing our principal interviewee with an independent bookstore somewhere around the country. We like to feature independent bookstores because they're so important to their communities. And today we're going to talk to John Evans, 
of the Lemuria Bookstore in Jackson, Mississippi. But first, Azer Nafasi. Azer Nafasi, it is, it is good to have you with us in the bookcase. And I am very struck by the title of your new book, Read Dangerously. Tell me what you mean by that. I mean that um, don't be complacent and don't start reading a book wanting it to confirm your presuppositions. Go into the book the way Alice jumped down that hole. First of all, she was curious. She ran after that white rabbit, not knowing where he would take her, not asking, where am I going to go? Is it safe? Is it okay? And then she just jumps down the hole without knowing what kind of a hole it is. And lo and behold, it is the wonderland. And so that is how I see dangerous reading, that uh, we set aside our prejudices and presuppositions, and we don't start demanding from the book to confirm our presuppositions, but we go into it risking that we might learn something new and that we might even change. Give me an example of dangerously versus complacently. Well, complacently a lot of times leads to censorship because we don't want to hear what we consider obscene or politically incorrect or uh, whatever uh, other reason. That is being trying to remain complacent, remain comfortable, not be questioned, because I believe that great fiction is not just about questioning the world, it's about questioning the reader as well. As in Nabokov's uh, Lolita, you have um, readers that ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you know, and so they have to experience the novel and come to their own conclusions. And it is amazing how much we want other people to decide for us. So reading Lolita and Tehran and then reading Dangerously, both of both of them very personal works. One of them reads almost like a diary. The second, your personal reflective readings about literature to letters to your father. At what point did you decide to go public with those writings? And, and, and what was the process that took it from internally facing to speaking to an audience? How did you know that the time was right to do it? And how did you do it? When I was living in the Islamic Republic of Iran, I wrote a lot of essay type, literary essays, you know, um, very correct literary criticism. And I wanted to be liberated from that kind of writing. Then in Iran, I didn't have much choice because I couldn't open my heart. And, uh, you know, when I came to U.S., I felt that I can open my heart. And it is not all heart. It is also the mind. But uh, I, I wanted the mix of it. And the only way I could have that mix was through narrative bringing in narrative. And the only way I could make the narratives convincing, it would be through uh, my own experiences, but not about me, but about those experiences. That was the difficult thing to do. I didn't want it to be me, me, me. So I hope I haven't turned any of them into me, me, me. How do you go about, I mean, are there sections that you have to rewrite? Do you have to go about essentially weaving a narrative into your personal reflections? How do you turn one to the other? 
I well, I am very much um, used to writing in my diary. I mean, I write a lot. And some of those writings remain in the diary and some of them step out and go into the world, you know. I don't know how that process really happens, but um, I once they leave my diary, I write and rewrite and rewrite, you know, until the words tell me to go home and mind my own business. And <laughs> There's a theme in your books going back to reading Lolita in Tehran, that, that people should challenge themselves when they read, and they should read things that maybe the government won't approve of. And you talk about having a group reading Lolita that the regime in Iran would not have approved of, and that there was a, a sense of rebellion in doing that. But I sense that that's all the way through. You should be rebellious when you read. You should be challenging yourself, and in many respects, challenging the norms of your society. Yes, because I believe that imagination is the form of knowledge. And it is a way of uh, relating to the world, perceiving the world and changing the world. And uh, it is based on two traits, on two very human traits. One is curiosity. And I always bring a quotation from Vladimir Nabokov saying that curiosity is insubordination in its purest form. <laughs> because once you become curious, you have to go out of yourself. You have to um, start uh, thinking of others, of strangers, thinking of what you don't know, thinking that of things that are not visible to the eye. And uh, we don't always welcome strange discoveries or we don't always welcome being changed. It is easy to have others change, but to be changed yourself, that is the most difficult thing, I think. So when you begin... First of all, in Read Dangerously, you take a number of authors that you feel people should read because when they do, they will be reading dangerously. Yeah. But you start with three authors that I don't suspect would ever have been, uh, would ever have entered their minds that they would be linked. Plato, Salman Rushdie, and Ray Bradbury. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me how those three came together in your mind and why they are important in, in relation to your thesis that people need to read dangerously. Well, it is this sort of asymmetrical, I don't know if I pronounced that right, asymmetrical connections, these strange connections, mysterious connections that exist um, between books as they do between ideas and feelings and emotions. Now, with Rushdie and Plato, to begin with, I was looking at the first written conflict between the poet and the establishment. Plato's Republic is a hierarchical society in which you tell the noble lie to the masses because you want to keep them in their place. Everybody has uh, an already preconceived place within the society. And the poet of the Homeric kind, not the poet who uh, praises the kings and the gods, but of the Homeric type, is not welcome there. So that is the first conflict, and they kick him out of the land. 
you know. So that is the relationship between Rushdie and uh, the philosopher King and uh, in Plato. Rushdie is uh, by nature, I mean, a writer who is very unruly and who's very mischievous. I don't believe that, as I mentioned in the book, I don't believe that Satanic Verses was about Islam or denigrated Islam. I think actually, uh, ironically, it, as he says, it is more about the West. It is about migration. It's about fragmentation. It is very much dealing with problems that we deal now. Now, would Ray Bradbury, he brings both the act of reading as a liberating force, as a form of resistance, and also brings in the kind of society that would burn books. And that, again, is a hierarchical society. It is one that uh, looks for comfort. Uh, there are televisions on the walls instead of paintings. And it, I felt that Ray Bradbury was a fitting uh, end uh, to uh, Plato and Salman Rushdie. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, you talk about reading dangerously. You talk about reading being a subversive act. And, and in fact, you also talk about in reading dangerously that the, the, the word word has a, has a root in the Arabic word for wound. And so, yeah. but you also talk about writing as being healing. How can it be subversive, dangerous, and healing all at the same time? That is the, the paradox in writing. Um, you know how nowadays everybody talks about certain books as uncomfortable. It, it makes me uncomfortable. It disturbs me. Well, it is because words, the kind of words that Elias Khoury calls wounds, after that invisible truth. And truth is always dangerous. Truth is not something um, that we can be comfortable with. I mean, look at Ukraine today. You, the, the truth about Ukraine um, doesn't make us sleep easier at night. You know? But taking action against it would be healing. And writing for me is healing because I take control of the reality which I cannot take control in reality. I give the version that I believe in, the version that I believe is the truth, and thereby re retrieve my humanity, my individuality, my identity. So in that way, both writing and reading become healing while they deal with wounds. Because you stand up to wounds. You don't accept them. And uh, that is in itself a liberating act. And that can be done better in fiction than nonfiction? No, the, the difference, well, I mean, when we talk about nonfiction, there are so many different uh, uh, forms of nonfiction. Like, for example, I always like to, for my students to study fiction alongside of history. I used fiction because... Um, it is by structure uh, democratic. I never wanted it to imply that just read fiction. It's just that for me, it was easier to talk about my ideas through fiction. I wanted to ask you, I, I, I'm going to quote you back. So you write that in Iran, 
The regime pays too much attention to poets and writers. The problem in America is that too little attention is paid to them. They are silenced not by torture and jail, but to indifference and negligence. So I wanted to ask you, if you were in charge of this country, how would you <laughs> fix it? I would give, give a lot of funding to National Endowment for Humanities and National Endowment for the Arts and National Endowment for Democracy. <laughs> I think that the three of them explain what a democracy should really be. I have been fighting for raising the funds for these organizations as soon as I, almost as soon as I came to America. Um, and the educational system. You know, we need, I don't want my students uh, to necessarily believe in everything I believe in. I'm not that arrogant to want it. But I want them to experience different ideas, different forms of belief, and make a choice themselves. So we're in education, we're in the business of teaching our students how to be independent of mind. And uh, indifference towards ideas, indifference towards imagination, takes away that opportunity from our young people, as, as I believe it, that is what is happening uh, right now in this country, you know. And uh, um, as far as indifference is concerned, Ray Bradbury actually talks about, you don't have to burn books to destroy a culture. All you have to do is make people not read the books. Hmm. And uh, that is what is happening in this country. One more quote, because it's, a, it's an interesting one. You come from Iran and you come from a country that has, that has now repressed uh, a lot of literature. And you, it was an act of daring for you and a group of, uh, of kids to, to read Lolita in Tehran. Yeah. So you come to this country and you say, and I'm quoting you again, in America, although vastly different from Iran, the society is fast becoming polarized, too much ideology and not enough discourse, in some instances reminding me of the Islamic Republic. First of all, is what happened in Iran with the takeover of a repressive clerical government, could that have been prevented by, by people being better readers and, and more engaged? How did that contribute to what happened in Iran? It definitely could have been prevented. And that's why I was um, so worried that American people don't take a stand against these trends that are so dangerous to, to this country. What happened with Iran, especially, I blame the intellectuals. I mean, I was one of them. We were against the Shah, but we were not for anything. We didn't pay attention that if you want a system to change, you wanted to change for better. You wanted to change so that it would become more free and would not just criticize the existing system, but come up with a plan. And the Ayatollah from the very beginning, I mean, before the revolution, uh, he had written about what he wants to do to this country. He had written about minorities, how he hates them, how they should be eliminated. 
he had written about women that should be married at the age of nine. It wasn't as if he had not said this, but the leaders of these political organizations all went behind Ayatollah Khomeini. They underestimated him. They thought that he will come to Iran and like Pope will go to his Vatican. He gave them an impression that he would not interfere. But as soon as he stepped down that plane uh, at Tehran airport, everything changed. And he started, then he started by repressing and killing members of the former government. Very few objected to that. Then he by and by came to the liberals, then the leftists, then, you know, now and then to people who were part of the Muslim Islamic revolution. They started on them. From the start, we should have objected. Women resisted. Women came out into the streets in droves uh, saying that freedom is neither Eastern nor Western. Freedom is global. And they were through acid into their faces and harassed them. And some among the left said that women's rights are not our problem right now. They're not our primary problem. Imperialism is. And so they gave up the rights. They gave up the rights. Do you keep an eye on how your work does in Iran and how it's received? Yes, it's very difficult because, well, first of all, I have to thank the Islamic Republic because whatever they ban, everybody wants to read. I'm not going to say that my books are popular in Iran because I'm such a great writer, but they are popular in Iran uh, because they're banned. But you are saying, it seems to me, Azar, you are saying, watch it, United States. You're not reading. You're not reading and you are risking a lot by not doing so, by not reading dangerously. You know, reading creates conversations and creates connections. It also, after curiosity, the other important aspect of reading is uh, empathy. It connects us to others, to those who are not like us, to those whom whom we might even think we don't like, you know, and and by uh, experiencing them, we might even change our minds about them. You know, so it worries me that how could a democracy that is based on empathy, based on connection, based on discourse, based on a constant give and take, how can it not read and and still be sympathetic? My father always used to regret the fact that the world knew so much about America and America knows so little about the world, you know. How much do we know about Ukraine? Should it be bombed before we... Uh, pay attention and think that democracy in Ukraine will affect democracy in America. Uh, We uh, know very little about the world. Something bad has to happen for us to to pay attention. And look at 9-11. That one also seemed to just crop up. We don't pay attention to the world, but the world is paying attention to us. 
And uh, we need to support democracies and democratic movements. And we won't do it until we know about them, until we feel there is a connection, a kinship between us, you know. Do you think social media over the last 10 to 20 years has added to our complacency about reading here in the U.S.? Yeah, I think social media, on one hand, uh, it is good as a complement to reality. Uh, But what it has done, it tries to take over our reality and therefore our imagination, you know, and that is dangerous. And, you know, it is even um, different the way we read. I mean, reading in itself needs um, a different kind of mindset than when you go on Facebook. And the kind of emptying words of their depth, like, for example, going on Facebook and talking about friends, that is really, that doesn't make sense to me. Half millions of people be my friends. (laughs) Uh, So social media has changed the way we look at ourselves. It's a cliche to say it, but going to restaurants and seeing everybody busy with their iPhone, including myself, you know, is not a beautiful sight. I have a question for you. I have a question for you just for personal selfish reasons. I read in an interview that you were a fan of thrillers. I am a huge thriller reader. What do you like? Oh, which which ones? The, I, I'm now actually gone back to reading mysteries in between my... I read during the pandemic. Every, like if somebody during the pandemic said, oh, it's a beautiful book about the reflection of... I go, no, 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 no. I'm not reflecting on anything until this is over. So I just read mystery after mystery after mystery after mystery after mystery. Yes, I know. And mystery. You know that mystery is, was banned in Iran because they said it's decadent. Now, the whole idea is that every single mystery protagonist, um, whether they are even in the police force, they are subversive. They are marginal and subversive characters who question everything about the society around it. It's been a delight to talk to you. You are a unique voice in literature and and in writing, and the clarion call, in effect, that you issue is an important one. And the fact that you come with the mutual background of having been in Iran and the tragedies that have befallen that country and the warnings that you issue about what could happen in the United States, very important. So we thank you for being with us. I want to thank you. I had so much fun talking to you guys. It was great. Thank you. And I hope we'll be in touch in some way. I hope so too. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. 
first, though. It's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. Azarnafasi, we are going to partake in our great tradition at the bookcase of rapid-fire questions, so let's get started. Book, e-reader, or audio? Oh my God, that is difficult. At least audio, I relate to uh, oral storytelling. Do you spend more time reading or writing? Reading. Do you write in longhand or on a computer? Both. But first longhand. Most influential book in your life? I'm very promiscuous. I have too many books. (laughs) And I'm very shamelessly promiscuous about books. So it's very difficult to choose one. Uh, Favorite book to read to your kids when they were little? Little Prince. Wizard of Oz, Persian mythology of our epic poet, Ferdowsi, some of the stories of 1001 Nights. <laughs> Is there a book on your bucket list that you haven't read and know you must? There are too many books on my bucket list, and I know that I'll never get through them. Do you read your reviews? Um, yes, both good and bad. Sometimes... The, the main reason I read them is that there's that rare review every once in a while that tells me something I don't know about my book, you know, and uh, I enjoy that. That is why I enjoy talking to readers of my book as well, because there's always that invisible space that they reveal. And finally, in five words, in five words, What do you want the rest of your life to be? Hopeful. Not optimistic, but hopeful. Good. Thank you very much. Very much. Oh, I like that. Azar Nafasi, thank you ever so much. It's been good to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much. Bless you. So, Kate, what did you take away from the interview? We talked a lot about at the beginning about the fact that she is trying to expand readers' scope of reading and their imagination. What else did you hear from her? Well, this is an intellectually challenging book. Uh, In some ways, it deals with um, the deep analysis of literature. But of course, I'm a literature nerd, so I really like that. But in some ways, this book got me back in touch with why I love reading so much. It's amazing to me that a book can be challenging and trouble deep waters, but at the same time that it can also be healing by offering somebody a humanizing perspective of somebody else. Also, I think, Kate, this is a very pertinent conversation right now because so sadly, we are getting into a to an era where people want to ban books and are banning books. 
It's amazing to me that in a country where we celebrate so often having access to all the information that we can get a hold of, we don't actually pay attention to all the information that we can get a hold of. That's amazing to me. Her argument that she has eloquently, I think, uh, stated here in our conversation is really an important one, especially now. To the local bookstore in Jackson, Mississippi, which is a town with a great literary tradition. There is a bookstore, Lemuria Books, that has existed for almost 50 years. And John Evans founded Lemuria Books. We had a chance to talk with him. John Evans from the Lemuria Bookstore in Jackson, Mississippi. It's a pleasure to have you with us. This is a town with a great literary tradition, and your bookstore has been around for a long time. And John, did you start it? I sure did. Started it in a converted apartment. You've been in business now close to 50 years. Have there been tough times? You know, they come and go. I've seen a lot of change, been doing it for 47 years. You know, somebody was asking me earlier today what it was like before the computer, you know, basically had to remember everything and write sales down and call in ISBN numbers over the telephone. You talk to every customer and you talk to them about why they were reading the book. And that's how we developed the bookstore, one book at a time. What was surviving the pandemic like for you? I think we were quite bold. We cut our hours from 72 to 36, kind of closed the door and did the car hopping routine. And oh, I think got got to where we opened the door to the store and masked it up around six or eight weeks later, focused a lot more on our email growth, internet growth, took our events building, which is across the parking lot, and turned it into a shipping warehouse. Mm. So... We, I think, fared pretty well and had fun marketing. Booksellers dressed up like a dinosaur and delivered car books to little kids that were out of school, parents were out. That seemed to catch on. Somebody came up with that idea. I don't know how. And I hope once the publishers start putting writers on the road again more often, that the events come back and the life will come back in the bookstore. It's pretty, you know, I'm a big believer that the books have to stand up and come alive in the store. They have to have their own space and life. And the writers mm-hmm. come into the bookstore are so vital because it gives the books a living, breathing way that, that they're, they're something different than just a product. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's real critical for the store to get back to that in the new norm. What sells well in Jackson? You know, when you talk about our literary tradition, you know, Ms. Welty was a great fan of the store and did signings here and supported the store and brought all her friends whenever they came to the store. And Willie Morris lived around the corner when he moved to Jackson in the 90s. What sells well? I think any independent store sells what they care about the most, the writers that they like the most, and the writers that come to the store. It's the books we want to make, the writers we want to support, the ones that we're enthusiastic about. What's coming out this summer that you're really excited about? I am extremely excited about the James Lee Burke new book. Uh, It's very dark. 
Uh, it's written during the pandemic, set in the pandemic, 85-year-old man in Montana, and you know it's him. He's writing, and it's dealing with grief, and um, his daughter passed away during COVID, and the main character of the book um, is dealing with the grief of living a life and losing a child, and whether that life is fulfilled Mm. And the, the 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 darkness of questioning yourself. Mm. And I'm reading the new Grisham book. The new Grisham book, you said? Yeah, the Sparring Partners. I just started it, and I think it's going to be fun. It's three novellas, and I think it's nice. You know, these long novels and these mystery writers sometimes put filler in them. And I think this is going to be nice that it, it's going to be tight. But I like novellas. I think the writers are challenged to write in a different way when they write a novella and, and really kind of leave out some of the hot air. Um, <laughs> kind of one of our favorite Mississippi writers, new writers, is Michael Ferris Smith and his Blackwood book about the, the strange people that live under the kudzu, uh, which is quite prevalent down here. I like that book a lot. It's very dark. Tell me a little bit about the book festival in August. What's going on there? We started it about, I think, eight years ago now. We started, I think we had a couple thousand people come the first year. In the 2019, we had 10 or 11,000 people come. And it's at the state capitol and uh, the grounds downtown under the Magnolias and the old Methodist church that was kind of a pillar of the civil rights movement. And so this year, the featured authors are going to be one of them is Jennifer Egan and Alice Walker are the two kind of wow. names. It's kind of a way to celebrate Mississippi's writing heritage. John Evans, that kind of attendance is testimony to the fact that your bookstore is an integral part of the Jackson, Mississippi community. And people who are there nearby can find you just off Interstate 55 in Banner Hall. I hope people will stop by. I've seen lots and lots of pictures of your bookstore, and it looks like a most cozy place. Thanks ever so much, John Evans of the Lemuria Bookstore, Jackson, Mississippi. Oh, thank y'all. Thank you so much. If you're ever down this way, come by and say hi. John Evans from Lemuria Books. I'll tell you, if you can get ten to 12,000 people to show up to a book festival, then I feel a heck of a lot more optimistic ending this show than I did when we began it. And I love the way also in talking about the literary tradition in his area, when he mentioned Eudora Weldy, it was missed that. I thought that was such a beautiful Southern touch. <laughs> anyway, we appreciate John Evans. And of course, just to give you a sense of the people who put this broadcast together, our little credits, and then we'll have Ozer take us off the air. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio, produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCam Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our senior producer. Liz Alessi is our executive producer. Special thanks to Josh Cohen, Iru Ekpanobi, and Elizabeth Russo. And finally, if you would sign us off the air. Well, actually, I liked about um, support not just support your bookstores and your libraries, but also actively create subversive book groups and read, 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 read dangerously.
As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.